With the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BCE, Rome fell into a bitter civil war. But when they came out, they would no longer be the republic everyone knew them to be, and history would see the formation of the one-day great Roman Empire. Hello, and welcome to The Zed Files. My name is Nina, and I'm here to talk about history. Not all history, just the history I want. And today, I want to talk about the Battle of Actium. Okay, as usual, I have a few disclaimers before I start. Firstly, this is going to be a two-parter, like the Atlantic Slave Trade episode. The first part, this one, will discuss the build-up to the Battle of Actium and all the socio-political factors that led to it. And the second part will discuss the battle itself and the aftermath. So if you know nothing about the Battle of Actium, let me give you a little information so you have a desire to listen to the rest of the episode. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, Rome didn't really know what to do and quickly fell into a civil war. The Battle of Actium is essentially the culmination of said civil war, which is why I must explain everything around it as well, because it wouldn't really make sense on its own. Um, but this is going to be a really fun little series. We're going to get some Julius Caesar action up in here, some Cleopatra action. Trust me, guys, it's a wild ride. But let's just jump right into it and start at the beginning. I trust you know who Julius Caesar is. I'm gonna be honest, I'm thoroughly judging you if you don't. But anyway, Julius Caesar was famously assassinated by his maybe son, some musty guy named Brutus in 44 BC. Well, Brutus wasn't the only guy involved, actually. It was a pretty wide conspiracy involving many, if not all, the Roman senators at the time. And they killed Caesar under the belief that they were protecting the Republic from tyranny. Claiming that Julius Caesar wanted to become a dictator, which, to be fair, he did, and pretty much already was. But murder is never the answer at the death penalty. Anyway, so, the old Roman guys were like, fuck you, Julius, and they all tried to stab him. And I'm not kidding, they all missed or stabbed him non-fatally. There were like at least 200 senators, and none of them got in a killing blow. Um, and Caesar was barely even fighting back because there were so many of them. But that's when Brutus comes in. Brutus gets the killing blow, and famously, Julius Caesar goes, A2, Brutus? Roughly translated to, and you, Brutus. Although, some historians think he actually said, fuck you, Brutus. But guess what? Plot twist, because Julius Caesar, like, might have maybe been Brutus's dad. Because he had a couple interesting nights with Brutus's mother back right around the time when Brutus's mother got pregnant with Brutus. So, you know, that's really sus. Um, additionally, Caesar had also paid for, like, all of Brutus's education and stuff, so... But anyway, the most important thing is that Julius Caesar is dead now. Okay, so like you might have been able to tell from the title, we have three main players in this here story. Firstly, we have Mark Antony, secondly, Cleopatra, and finally, Octavian slash Augustus. I'm gonna give you a brief, maybe not so brief because I tend to rant, history on these three, because they're the main characters and they're important. So firstly, we have Mark Antony. You might have heard of him, because this small indie playwright named Shakespeare wrote a play called Antony and Cleopatra, which fictionalizes the romance between the two, something I will get into later. Mark Antony was Julius Caesar's right-hand man, which made him a pretty powerful guy in Rome. He worked for a while as a general and the head of the plebeian committee, which is ironic because he was nowhere near a pleb in ancient Rome. When Caesar was alive, he had appointed Octavian to his heir. However, following his death, Mark Antony also made a plea for the title, which you will see play out in this story. 
Next, we have Queen Cleopatra. Now, I might be biased, but I love this woman. She's such a baddie. There's a story of her rolling herself up naked in a carpet to get to Julius Caesar, which is just so iconic, and I absolutely stan. So before her love affair with Antony, as we'll soon see play out, she was the love interest to one Julius Caesar, and bore him one son named Caesarian, or quote, Little Caesar. Cleopatra is quite a polarizing figure in history. Some people see her as the seductive mistress of two of Rome's most powerful generals, while others see her as the victim of good propaganda and sexism. But we'll explore that later. What you should know about her is that right now she's the queen of Egypt, and one of the only women to ever lead Egypt. I would love to tell you that whole story, but we don't have time, so maybe another day. Finally, we have Octavian, or as you may know him, Caesar Augustus. It's the same person, but in this episode I'll probably be referring to him as Octavian because that is what he would have been going by at the time, and I just want to choose one so it's not confusing. I will explain why he has two names at the end of next week's episode, but I don't want to tell you now because no spoilies. Um, but Octavian was Julius Caesar's great-nephew, and besides Caesar's son with Cleopatra, he would have been Caesar's only eligible heir, since his only other children were women and sexism. So Octavian, like Cleopatra, was a pretty polarizing figure in history. But because I don't want to spoil anything, we won't get into that yet. What you need to know about Octavian is that, for now, he's the heir, and he doesn't really like Caesarian because he's the only other guy that could really make a solid claim for the Roman throne. Okay, so now that you know what I have decided you need to know, let's get back into the timeline. So, it's 44 BCE, and Julius Caesar is dead. Now, regardless on what you think about Julius Caesar now, you can't deny that the Roman people loved him. So that puts the Roman senators and the higher-ups in a tricky situation. So it's likely true that the three most powerful men in Rome at the time were Octavian, Mark Antony, and this other guy who was way less relevant named Marcus Aemilia Lepidus. So in the avoidance of a huge civil war and just a political nightmare, these three guys, realizing that none of the others are going to peacefully accept the other as emperor or consul, reluctantly form the Second Triumvirate. Now, a triumvirate is like a political regimen that consists of three people that are meant to hold equal power. However, this is rarely the case. Now, before these guys do it, Julius Caesar did, hence the name the Second Triumvirate. Back in the day, Julius Caesar formed the First Triumvirate with Marcus Licinius Crassus and Pompey the Great. And remember Pompey the Great, because I will talk about him later. So, the Second Triumvirate was formed with the intentions of pursuing and defeating Caesar's assassins, which I poetically explained at the beginning were a group of Roman senators with horrible aim. So this is exactly what they did, culminating at the Battle of Philippi. But after this battle, the Second Triumvirate had some other stuff to work out. Initially connected by their desire to avenge the great general Caesar, now they had to talk about politics, which we all know can be kind of polarizing. So these three guys are not working very well together. They're all super suspicious and resentful and just not getting along. But what happens is they pretty much divide Rome in three, even though they're still supposed to be sort of ruling together. Okay, so now we're gonna jump to 41 BCE, and people think that Cleopatra might have had something to do with Caesar's death. 
She had been living in Rome at the time, but was immensely unpopular, and so following Caesar's death, she had fled back to Egypt, knowing that she wouldn't be protected without Caesar there. So Antony goes to Tarsus in Cilicia, a region that's now in Turkey, and commands Cleopatra to meet him and answer to the charges that she had aided Brutus in the murder of Julius Caesar. And quite famously, she shows up aboard her luxury barge on the Sidonus River, all decked out in what has generally been accepted to have been the intentions of seducing Mark Antony. And Mans just falls for it. Like, he's swooning, and Antony's like, kinda ditches Rome to go stay with Cleopatra in Egypt. And meanwhile, back in Rome, Octavian's like, what the fuck, because Mark Antony's younger brother, Lucius Antonius, had staged a revolution against Octavian and was suppressed. And so this pisses Antony off, and so Antony joins forces with the son of Pompey the Great, whom I briefly mentioned earlier was one of the guys that Julius Caesar formed the first triumvirate with. I'm not gonna get into it, but Caesar and Pompey the Great had a falling out and went to war, and his son, who Antony joined forces with, a guy named Sexus Pompey, had continued the war, out of spite, I'm assuming. So, brief recap, because this is a little confusing, Mark Antony and Cleopatra are together now. Mark Antony's brother tried to revolt against Octavian and fails. Mark Antony's mad that his brother was suppressed, so he joins forces with Octavian's enemy. And by the way, the second triumvirate is technically still in existence, but naturally this is putting a strain on it. <laughs> However, this whole alliance thing doesn't really go super well for Antony. At the time, Sextus Pompey was running a fleet of pirate ships, trying to interfere with Rome's food supply. But with Antony's encouragement, he aimed higher, and blockaded the town of Brundisium, forcing Octavian's hand. And so, the Roman army, along with Octavian and Lepidus, who, if you've forgotten, is the third guy in the Second Triumvirate, marched to relieve this town blockaded by Mark Antony and Sextus Pompey. However, when Octavian arrives, they don't fight. They actually make peace, which I find to be quite shocking, considering it's ancient Rome we're talking about, but they decided to make peace by having Mark Antony marry Octavian's sister, Octavia. And so, Antony broke off his accord with Sexus, and all is well. For like five minutes? Because then, when the battle ends, irrelevant-ass Lepidus decides to claim the victory for himself. And Octavian is like, what the fuck, dude? We won this battle because my general, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, is really good, not because of you. And Lepidus is like, I don't care, I'm claiming to own Sicily now. And this move strongly opposed Octavian, so in response, he exiled Lepidus from the Second Triumvirate and sent him back to Africa, where he was governing. And you might be like, if they're supposed to hold an equal amount of power, how is he doing this? Let me tell you a secret, they're supposed to hold equal power, but they don't. Thus was the first major fracture in the Second Triumvirate, and it's not long until it falls apart completely. So this leaves Octavian and Antony as the two major powers in Rome, and honestly, I think it was inevitable for these two to clash. They both had strong support and factions backing them, and neither really wanted to share. But what we see now is just a whole bunch of military power plays, each trying to essentially prove themselves the best general. And it doesn't go too well for Mark Antony, but it goes really well for Octavian. Also, at this time, Mark Antony is living in Egypt with Cleopatra, even though he's supposed to be married to Octavian's sister, Octavia. But him and Cleopatra go on to have two children anyway. Twins, a girl and a boy. So now it's 36 BCE, and he runs this poorly managed military campaign in Parthia, 
with the intention of enlarging Rome's territories in the east. But it just bombs. Like, he loses by a landslide. He loses 30,000 men in the attempt. Meanwhile, in 34 BCE, Octavian is just riding this high of brilliantly successful campaigns to secure the northeastern frontiers of Italy. And then Mark Antony fails to conquer Armenia. And this one's like a little more successful, but he still fails. So Antony's starting to lose more support in Rome, especially since he spent the past few years canoodling with Cleopatra in Egypt. And Romans hate foreigners. And then he makes another bad decision when he repudiates his marriage to Octavia and marries Cleopatra. Because not only does this ruin his peace agreement with Octavian, but once again, Romans hate foreigners. Like, the worst thing you can be to a Roman is not Roman. And then he makes things worse by openly opposing Octavian and calling Caesarion the, quote, king of kings. And then randomly appoints his children with Cleopatra, who are like preschoolers, as the rulers of Syria, Asia Minor, Cyrenaica, Armenia, and Parthia. Which is just exercising a power he didn't even have. So who can really blame Octavian when he writes to the Senate in 33 BCE stating that he will no longer accept reappointment as a triumvir, marking the end of the second triumvirate. Now, say what you will about Octavian, but man is a brilliant politician. He knows he can't outwardly declare war on Mark Antony because he still has significant enough support in Rome. And so he runs this propaganda campaign, but not against Mark Antony, against Cleopatra. And it could not have gone better for him. So Mark Antony has put his will in the care of the Vestal Virgins, which were women who set things on fire. And Octavian wants it. So he shows up demanding they give it to him. And they're like, no, but if you take it, there's nothing we can do to stop you. And so he takes it, and he goes and he reads it out to the Senate and the People's Assembly and makes it very clear that Antony's intentions are to leave everything to his children with Cleopatra and uplift Caesarion. But he paints Mark Antony as the victim and Cleopatra as the evil seductress of two of Rome's greatest generals, focusing the people's imagination on her. They were taught to believe and fear that if Antony gained power, he would surrender Rome to Cleopatra. Interestingly, many historians believe that this will was actually forged. I like this quote from a historian named M.P. Charlesworth. He says, Then against Cleopatra was launched one of the most terrible outbursts of hatred in history. No accusation was too vile to be hurled against her, and the charges then made have echoed through the world ever since, and have sometimes been naively taken for facts. Octavian proclaimed everything from her being a sorceress to claiming that she was the worshipper of beast gods, whatever that means. But the thing is that this was extremely effective, and it could not have gone better for Octavian. Everyone hated Cleopatra, and this whole campaign is the main reason why she still has that reputation. Here's the genius part. He turned the tide of public opinion against Antony without having to openly challenge or charge Antony directly with any crimes or any accusations at all. He did it all through Cleopatra, and positioned himself as Antony's savior by recognizing Cleopatra's manipulations. Octavian had everyone fooled, including the Senate, who in response revoked Antony's powers as a triumvir and consul, citing, quote, national security because he was clearly underneath Cleopatra's spell. 
And then Octavian declared war on Cleopatra, which was really just declaring war on Antony except he took the scenic route. But because he declared war on Cleopatra, he could avoid offending Mark Antony's remaining supporters. So he positioned himself as the savior, saving Rome from the manipulative grasp of Cleopatra. He was able to warp the situation to make it look like he was doing so to save Mark Antony. But Octavian knew Antony wasn't going to leave Cleopatra, and he would never accept a subordinate position in Octavian's Rome. So Octavian knew that Mark Antony would condemn himself while defending Cleopatra and make himself an enemy of the state. I mean, this was clearly a dick move on Octavian's part, but like, respect the hustle, man. Like, Mans did what he had to do, and I find it kind of baller. So now it's winter of 33-32 BCE, and Cleopatra and Antony have mobilized their army in Ephesus, or what is now Turkey. Cleopatra was taking on most of the cost of the army, using Egypt's treasury. She was keeping them fed and keeping them comfortable. Antony's close advisors understood what Octavian's strategy was and urged him to send her back to Egypt and not play into his hands. However, Antony refused, and from there he moved his command to Samos in Greece and sent his army and fleet to Athens. He and Cleopatra joined them in the spring of 32 BCE. Again, his advisors urged him to distance himself from her, but once again he refused. But J.C. Fuller, a historian, notes that by now, distancing himself from Cleopatra was clearly impossible, for without her moral and financial support, he could no longer hope to wage the war. So Antony's options weren't really looking good. And then from Athens, Antony and Cleopatra moved their forces north to Actium, situated on the Ionian Sea, and they arrived in August of 32 BCE. Antony had 19 legions, totaling somewhere between 60,000 and 63,000 men, as well as perhaps 12,000 horses and a fleet totaling at eight squadrons, each of 66 ships, including one squadron led by Cleopatra and her flagship, the Antonia. They spent the winter of 32-31 BCE in Actium, and we will pick up there next week. I will give you a full rundown of my sources and my recommendations next week, so for now, you will just have to wait. But thank you so much for listening, I appreciate it greatly. I know this episode was kind of, like, less serious, but I just kind of had fun writing it, so hopefully I will see you next week and you will return for part two next Monday. See you then, bye!